You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hi, welcome to Comeback City, where we explore Detroit's past, present, and future. Today, we are talking about Lafayette Park, a neighborhood that is considered to be a mid-century modern masterpiece. This episode is brought to you by Spectacular Strolls. Spectacular Strolls offers 15 historic walks in Detroit. Each walk is a self-guided 20-minute tour. Visit SpectacularStrolls.com to order your next Detroit history adventure. I'm Linda Shepard. With me today is my co-host, Ed Brohard. Hi, Linda. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to this topic. You know what? Lafayette Park is such a beautiful neighborhood. Um, it's got a really interesting history that um, is kind of maybe not so great because it was an urban renewal project. And I and it's, I think it's going to be kind of fun to talk about how it happened, why it happened, how it started. Um, yeah, the whole the whole topic of urban renewal, which was, of course, a uh, a buzzword from like the ninth, late forties on, uh, is an interesting one and inspires a lot of controversy in a way because it has inherent racism. Yeah. Absolutely, because the areas that are often targeted for urban renewal projects are predominantly African-American or persons of color, low socioeconomic. Segregated. Yeah, yeah, very often segregated. Um, That was the only place they could live, but they often made vibrant communities there. Um, think Harlem, think, you know, uh, some of the barrios of L.A. I mean, these are where people lived and they built um, communities there. And culture. And culture. And suddenly um, from people, you know, that were not at all part of their culture, they were told they had to give all that up. And sometimes it was very abrupt and very painful. I think that that is the story of Lafayette Park. Um, so let's start at the beginning. It was an area, I mean, you know, all of Detroit was farmland. Before that, it was just open sure. you know, land, but then farmland. And then that area of the city had a very rich soil. Right. And it was a, a rich black topsoil. So uh, it became known as Black Bottom because it was uh, kind of uh, lower elevation and uh, it was rich farming. Uh, but then as it developed, it was on the edge of the downtown area of Detroit. And it was the area that um, it, it had always been inhabited by different ethnic populations, but eventually and particularly uh, with the great migration of um, African Americans from the South, basically to come to Detroit yeah. to work in the factory, to work for in the five dollar a day with Henry work, Ford's, yeah, to work in the factories and maybe with the promise of escaping Jim Crow laws in the South, at least that was the the hope. And uh, so 
uh, migrating to the great northern industrial centers, of which Detroit was the the ultimate, um, it it became a uh, a place to live, and sometimes not by choice because there were all kinds. We've talked about this in the past. All kinds of ordinances and laws Jim and Jim Crow. So. Yeah, say, you know, you were living down in Mississippi and you heard about this great opportunity to get $5 a day, which was mm-hmm. a fortune mm-hmm. back then, and a huge opportunity for someone without an education or a chance to get a good job down south, really. Uh, you'd come up to Detroit, you'd get this great job. Where are you going to live? You're not going to live in a normal neighborhood right. where the other factories, the factory workers live. That's right. That's they, not going to happen. You're no. going to be put into a supposedly separate but equal neighborhood, which right. was not true, which was kind of a big lie. Yeah. Well, and this this developed along Hastings Street, which on a map you can't even find anymore. No. And we will, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, Hastings Street was a, you know, the the, um, the names of the streets that go north and south in Detroit, many of them with a French derivation, obviously not Hastings, but uh, often they reflected uh, – the, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they uh, they often reflected the names of the people that owned the farms, the ribbon farms that That's uh, right. that went down to the river. Orleans, yeah, yeah, Rivard, Rivard, yes, uh, Dubois, yes. Um, so Campo, and so these were all uh, parts of the city. Then that, and like in most towns, the river was so important that the growth uh, kind of moved out from the river. So Hastings Street um, developed as the main center of African-American life in Detroit. And it was vibrant. I mean, there were hotels. There were businesses, thousands of businesses that were actually black-owned, okay? Uh, And um, it was fairly poor, but it was also, uh, you know, vibrant, vibrant, sustainable. There were uh, there were bars, restaurants, uh, hotels, uh, clothing stores, everything that that community uh, would need. So it was bounded by Gratiot Avenue, Brush Street, Verner Highway, and the main commercial strips were Hastings and Saint Antoine Street. Yes, that's right. And um, so after World War II, okay, there were a number of reasons why this was targeted as an area for redevelopment. Part of it was that um, the, the, the large majority of people here were renters, which means that uh, they weren't paying their own property taxes. So it, this was an area that didn't produce great revenue for the city. And there was no ownership. Yes, that's which right. Which was a problem. Yeah, it would be landlords. But right. it, it didn't generate the same kind of property tax revenue that individually owned homes right. would. Okay? Uh, and because of the restrictive housing practices, many of these people, even if they could save enough up enough to – uh, buy houses, they just weren't available. There weren't places in the city that they could 
could live. Um, and then also Detroit, you know, had experienced such huge growth that even with its very large geographic footprint, it was built up. There weren't any real spare areas in the city, you know, to, to – It was growing so quickly. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, the city hall saw that this was a an opportunity to um, move those renters out, put in people that would be, you know, owning their homes or cooperatives. Um, they could generate much higher rents. They could generate much more tax revenue. So that was part of it too. And I think the whole urban renewal movement was really big back then. It was. Right now, we know what that means. But back then, it was a positive growth right. thing. Yeah. It was the idea. was encouraged by everyone. Right. And they, you know, it, it looked at aging cities and how to make them more beautiful, more attractive, uh, more desirable for new growth, for people moving in rather than out. And uh, and then, of course, you also had um, the whole advent of the interstate system. This was uh, President Eisenhower's, you know, one of his great achievements. Yeah. Uh, but in but it was a double edged sword. I mean, in some ways, it was also a curse for urban areas because they came through. And they took huge swaths of, of land from cities and developed freeways so that you could either easily get to get downtown or as some of, you know, as often happened, just pass through downtown altogether, you yes. know? So what had been vibrant neighborhoods became eight lane highways. And then you also have the problem of this huge, big, enormous freeway acting as kind of a barrier. Yeah. Separating. Like when I'm in Lafayette Park, um, I notice, you know, I can see the, the, uh, the skyscrapers, all the buildings of this mm -hmm. city. They seem really close by, but to get there, I've got to cross over the expressway, which is going to be a barrier. It is a barrier. And, uh, it's not like every street, uh, crosses the freeway. Bridges are right. expensive to build. And so, um, maybe every third block, there'll be a crossover. But that's not a convenient thing. It really is. It means isn't. that you're going, you know, blocks and blocks out of your way to simply go a couple blocks. It does not encourage walkability. <laughs> no, no, it really doesn't. And, and it's also kind of just a psychological barrier, too. I think you're right. Yeah. You don't feel like you're a, a part of the. It's you almost know, like the, a little bit of a wall. Right. An underground wall, kind of. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there's some people that like that idea, you know, that whole fortress mentality. We've talked about that with the yeah. Renaissance Center and with right. Jefferson and Avenue Jefferson. Uh, separating you from, from uh, other areas. But um, I think most city planners now agree that that's not a positive and that's something they really want to change. Yeah. So um, the whole idea to turn black bottom – Mm -hmm. into an urban renewal project. Right. Uh, this plan was first introduced in the 1950s. Is that right, Ed? Yeah. Well, it, 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 they began talking about it really post-war in the, in the 40s. 
Uh, by the end of the 40s, they definitely were looking at urban renewal projects in Detroit and other cities. So um, the city ended up hiring Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. That's right. To um, design this massive project because uh, Lafayette Park is big. It's um, 46 acres. Yeah, it, it's it's um, a sizable area. Three distinct area. Uh, but connected sections. Right. So, um, yeah, it's it's not a small little development at all. It's quite a big area. So they got Mies van der Rohe, uh, a couple other people, uh, and they decided to set out to create an integrated community that would attract people back to the heart of the city. You know, that was part of it, too. People were leaving the cities for right. the suburbs. Right. This was – you know, they were getting on the freeway. <laughs> yeah. And they were leaving the city. And this was designed to bring people back to the city. So that was kind of a good idea, too. Right. Um, yeah. In, in theory, it was a very good idea. And, um, it was supported, uh, strongly by the UAW and by Walter Ruther and by people in labor, uh, to be able to, um, increase the density of the city, not have it as far flung make it livable downtown instead of, you know, a decaying urban core. So all of that was good. And a lot of it actually did work. I mean, we don't want to sound like Lafayette Park was some sort of dismal failure because unlike some places where that was the case, Lafayette Park has been at various times a really great success story and it really is again. Um, well, I think, you know, from the very beginning, um, it was designed to be a racially diverse neighborhood. Right. Which uh, is, you know, was probably a, maybe a radical idea back in the 50s. Yeah. The whole racially diverse right. idea. I mean, it was all about segregating, you know, these people, those people, whatever. Yeah. Um, but – it has always remained uh, racially diverse. Right. The uh, The problem, of course, is that the people that it was supplant, supplanting, that it was moving out, were not people that even with um, a variety of incomes and, uh, you know, rental uh, structures could really afford to right. live there. Now we're back to – Gentrification. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the people that were moving in were not the same people that had lived there. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to give you this wonderful community uh, for you to live in and uh, and you know keep your culture here and everything. No, it was like you're going to have to leave so that we, we can build we something can, fancy. We can build this, and then. If you have the adequate income level, then you can come back. But, you know, most of those people were not yeah. in a position to do that. Right. And the and the businessmen who had to give up their businesses and were flung to all sorts of different parts of the city no or just really lost it. where they went. You know, they're, they weren't coming back there. No. No. You weren't going to have like record shops and, and uh, soda fountains and things like that in the middle of Lafayette Park. It wasn't in the plan. No. But – um, the construction of all the housing 
uh, in Lafayette Park is and remains very high quality. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. And innovative. Is. Innovative, yes. Well, it's um, Mies van der Rohe, interesting character, and it's not just him. He was part of that whole modernist, minimalist movement. Mid-century. Uh, yes, and it began, of course, in, in Germany back in the, in the 1920s, really. And he was born in Germany. He was born he – was, he was German. I mean, despite the fact that his name sounds Dutch – uh, he actually took the the he was born uh, Lud, uh, Ludwig Mies. Mies is his last name. We often think of him when you say Mies van der Rohe. Yeah, like, that's but his, his first, first name, name was Ludwig. It was Ludwig. Yeah, and Mies was his his surname. Okay, like Rohard and Shepherd, you know. Right. And uh, so he added the van der Rohe, and this maybe was a little bit of an affectation. When he uh, began to become a rising star in, in Germany of this new kind of architecture and finally wound up in Berlin at the head of the uh, – what was called the Bauhaus, which means the building house, um, whole uh, modernist movement in architecture, um, he was the son of a, a stonecutter, you know, a, a tradesman and uh, so fairly low status. Um, and in Germany, you to, to have uh, von something or other added to your name meant that you came from kind of an aristocratic background, okay? Oh. Uh, but so he wasn't able to make it a, a, a German uh, suffix, but he could make it a Dutch suffix. And so instead of the von, he used van. He found a and, loophole. And ro, R-O-H-E, was his – wife's family name, her maiden name. Oh. So he just kind of tacked that on because yeah. it sounded good. So he became Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. And uh, so it's not like his last name was van der Rohe. This was really something that he kind of added on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, he had no formal training. And no. we've had – this is a story that we have heard yeah, over and yeah. over. Albert Kahn. And, uh, you know, our guardian building yeah. architect. Yeah, uh, Wirt Rowland started was, out you know, just apprentice. as a yeoman apprentice. Yes. Um, but, and, you know, something else I've noticed about, you know, our series of uh, Detroit architects is um, at a very young age, they became obsessed with drawing. And drawing mm -hmm. buildings. Yeah. That's how they all started their careers was just as children drawing and drawing buildings. Kids drawing and then working into becoming draftsmen, but, you know, often self-taught. Yeah. No, that's true. You know, I mean, it's not something we encourage children to do yeah. today. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, boy – the best gift you could give to kids or grandkids would be like, you know, pencils and paper and crayons right. and th things to make art, to produce things, to make visual ideas. But it also seemed to be kind of a passion of theirs yeah. at a very young age, right. something that maybe they were not encouraged to do, but something that they just really wanted to do themselves. Yeah, yeah I think that's probably what separates that – the. The, the genius from the person who just knows how to draw. Right. So, But on the other hand, you know, there's that 
thousand hour rule where you you're not going to be good at something until you put it out. You know, you're going to have to do a lot of drawings. You have to put in the time. Yeah, yeah. That's why the whole apprenticeship thing is so important. Right. So anyway, they uh, they these Germans back in the early part of the century developed a whole new style, and it was it was. Um, you know whether you called it minimalism, modernism, um, it was brutalism. That was one reference. Uh, it Not was my favorite it, type of building. It was it was a it was a rejection of the overly ornamented right. styles from before the Beaux Arts style, where it was all about um, kind of covering up a box to make it kind of prettified. Yes. This was saying the box is in intrinsically beautiful itself and that you could make something beautiful and interesting by actually showing how it was made, having that appear um, on the outside. In other words, it was don't try to hide anything, you know. Put it <laughs> out there. Let the, let the actual skeletal frame be something beautiful. Right. And kind of the technology, let that kind of show through yeah, a little bit. That's right. Um, the uh, Mies van der Rohe had, uh, is attributed with two very famous quotes. And one, of course, we use all the time, and that is less is more. Yes. The idea of um, having something simple and basic be uh, beautiful. Simple and elegant. And elegant. Yes, right. And uh, the other one is God is in the details. And I, I would take that to mean that having the, the, the basic building blocks, so to speak, of any structure or anything you create being uh, such high quality um, that it makes it beautiful, that you, ha you make a um, – you make something uh, aesthetically pleasing uh, and beautiful simply by using those good materials. Yeah. And so what he came up with um, in Lafayette Park is, um, you know, a, a variety of different housing options. You've got a 22-story high-rise. And then you have ground-level townhouses mm -hmm. and parks with walking trails through the parks. And those um, townhouses were designed so that each one um, would receive at least four hours of sunlight per day, thanks to large floor-to-ceiling glass windows. Right. You know, you've got a 19-area green space. Uh, he kind of constructed this super block idea, which essentially meant erasing the typical city grid of streets and creating a suburban setting within an urban environment. Right. Which sounds a little goofy, but I think it kind of works. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it takes away the reliance on the automobile. Which is a pretty right. radical idea for Detroit, right? In the, the 1950s. Motor City. Yeah. Um, and so uh, people obviously had cars, but they weren't – they weren't um, 
they weren't like featured. Um, when you see pictures of the structures at uh, Lafayette Park, either artist renderings or the actual thing, you you it's it's not a parking lot. You know, you don't see a lot of cars. You really don't. They're underground. I mean, like uh, for some of the big structures, like thirteen hundred, for instance, Lafayette had um, two uh, a two story underground parking system. So there was no street parking at all, you know? Um, so it really this, improves the appearance. Oh, it, it really changes the aesthetic tremendously. Right. Um, it, he, they, he did – they did mandate and this was through the Federal Housing Administration too that there needed to be some sort of retail available. So um, it may have been an afterthought, but there was a um, a small shopping center that was put in, right? And that still exists today. That's still there, yeah. And in fact, it looks design wise a lot like his his uh, his townhouse. It's got a grocery store, yeah. and yeah. you know the type of things that you really, you know, are really functional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the dry the, cleaner. That's right. And there was a store. there was a school down there. In fact, it was originally the Friends School um, that was run by Quakers, and then uh, and now the the high school uh, that services that whole area is Martin Luther King High School, which is a, a modern construction. So yeah, I mean the idea was that this would be a functional functional neighborhood. Okay. Not something that you had to necessarily leave or go far away from. Right. Um, you know, and back to the whole race issue, um, you know, there was attention given to that subject. And black families actually did make up 10% of the occupants in 1960, mm-hmm. which – for 1960, that was a radical idea. It wasn't happening in the suburbs. It wasn't Let's happening put it that way. anywhere else. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So, um, you know, I mean, there were a lot of people that had to leave and couldn't afford it. Right. But that was not a matter of racial segregation. That was more a matter of gentrification and just being priced out of that. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh I have sort of a personal connection to Lafayette Park because um, my wife's aunt for a number of years was the rental agent um, in the uh, the late 70s and right through uh, much of the 80s. And um, as part of that, she was able to live there. Uh, as part of her, now, her did pay. she live in the tower or? Well, she had uh, four different locations. She started out in uh, the La- Lafayette Towers East, uh-huh. and I think that was her favorite place. She be, uh, her first apartment was on the tenth floor, and then she moved up to the twentieth floor. And so she, she had a great view. That. Yeah, it looked out toward uh, the river and downtown. And uh, my kids, when we take them, they they were just kids then, we'd take them down to visit. And they love. They do, would stand at these Florida – you have to understand that that building is floor-to-ceiling windows. You know? That's so great. It's tremendous. It's huge – it's plate glass walls. And you, they would stand there and look across 
Uh, they were especially fascinated by the Detroit River and all the signs, signage in Windsor with the neon lights. Oh. Yeah. And this was before they built the, the casino there. Uh, but the, the, the big thing that you really saw was the um, – what was it? Canadian Club sign at oh, Hiram Walker. Right. And that would like light up and it was like a two-story tall uh, sign. And, you know, it was reflected on the water. They just sure. loved that. And they could also see the boats going by. You'd see like when freighters went down the river. Sounds wonderful to so, me. Yeah. And then she wound up moving to the um, the pavilion, which was actually the earliest high rise that, that was in the complex. Right. And um, I'm not sure if that was – I don't know where her office was. Um, she the – final, the final place that she lived was 1300, which was uh, the part of the uh, – it was called the Lafayette Extension. It was the southern part uh, down to Jefferson that was added on just slightly later. And 1300 became a, a pretty prestigious address for – a lot of of people in in Detroit, judges and um, you know people in city administration, a uh, an infamous criminal or two, <laughs> but uh, you know it it, it uh, she enjoyed living there, and I I we'd go down and, and visit her, but uh, she was a very successful rental agent. She began when she was hired. It was owned the the, the uh, leasing company was out of Chicago. It was called Habitat. And they had another compo- uh, number of complexes. But um, when they hired her, she there were like about, I don't know, 60 or so uh, vacancies. And uh, during the course of her tenure there, it went down to two, <laughs> wow. which is not very many for no. a huge complex like that. That's great. Yeah. So that kind of tells the story right there. People wanted to live there. They, they did want to live there. And, uh, of course, this was a time in Detroit where – you know, the crime was high. There was a perception of the city. So um, security became very important. A lot and, of businesses were leaving the city at right. the time. So they had good security. They had um, uh, they had amenities that you didn't find in the city very often, like there was an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Uh, the, the, the twin towers of Lafayette East and West – uh, it was an interesting design. The the whole um, heating and industrial plant that serviced those buildings was underground between them. Oh, yeah, it wasn't actually in the building, and it serviced both of them. And then on top of that was the big pool and kind of uh, uh, seating and social area between the two buildings that they shared. I'm sure it was a very radical design. At yeah, the time. yeah, it was because you're surrounded by park, but you're in the middle of this, you know, the downtown of the oh, city. Oh, yeah, and you've got yeah. the skyscrapers and, right. you know, you've got the downtown skyline right next to you, basically, and the river and right. everything is right there. I still think it's a wonderful, wonderful location. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially right now, I mean, it's very close to Eastern Market, which is a fabulous place to go to shop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Wonderful. Um, you've got the De Quinder Cut. Yes. Uh, and, and of course, uh, we've mentioned this in, in, in the past. And this is 
turning out to be a, such a boon for downtown residents. It and really a is draw for a people. Very unusual thing. That and what it is is it's called that because it's you know the north south street that uh, goes down there is Dequinder, but this was originally um, the railroad line. Yeah, and it's a rails grand trunk. Yeah, grand trunk. It's a rails to trails redevelopment, rethinking of. Yeah, they call it an urban recreational path. Yeah. It opened in May of 2009, and it basically goes from Eastern Market to the Riverwalk. I mean, what a great travel route. I mean, two places you really want to be. That's right. Riverwalk and Eastern Market, and it goes underground basically through Lafayette Park. Yes, that's right. And you can get to it from Lafayette Park very easily. Right. Some of the apartments, like the newer, newer ones, like Ducharme Place and uh, the Rivard Apartments, uh, which I think are architecturally the most interesting inside, they're right along the winter cot. And you just kind of, kind of walk right out and there's walkways that, that go over it. So you can access it easily. You know, that's kind of an amazing project, that Dequinder Cut, because, I mean, for years and years, it was like a horrible kind of homeless bum mm-hmm. hangout spot yeah. because it's below grade it's underground yeah. and it was an abandoned railroad line it was with all these bridges you know and all these big areas where you know you could be sheltered i guess from the weather right so it was a huge it was just a very it's you know, everything you think about when you think of urban industrial decay yes. uh, before. And so to see that transformed and then to connect with our um you know our beautiful riverfront that's being, you know, re uh Oh, that riverfront is amazing. Revived. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So and and of course the plans for the Dequindercut and for that whole uh, urban trail idea is um, is to extend it up through the new center, uh, the cultural center, Wayne State University, and then over to the um, to the west side too. It's part of the Iron Bell Trail, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is a non motorized trail that goes from Belle Isle to Iron, Michigan. Wow. Yeah, up in the Upper Peninsula. That's pretty neat. That yeah. is neat. It's a. I think it's a big um, plan by the state to provide, uh, you know, a non-motorized uh, bike trail, mostly you know for people that really like to take long bike sure. trips, and that's a really popular. And it's thing so right visually now. interesting too, because, yes. um, you know, the, we're used to seeing urban graffiti everywhere, and and kind of what some people would consider ugliness. This channeled that creativity, and it's just full of wonderful, vibrant, artistic murals. So it's it's also like an art gallery. It really is. You know, they did a lot of work. You know, they removed the tracks, and they put in this great uh, 20-foot-wide paved pathway with separate lanes for pedestrians and bicycles, but they left the graffiti. Mm-hmm. And... um yeah, it's kind of like this bizarre underground art gallery. <laughs> it is, yeah. I no. mean, what did they – I don't know what they paid Shepard Ferry, you know, to put that mural on, you know, over at uh, Campus Martius. You know, yeah. he's a graffiti artist. I mean, sure. 
you know, back in the 70s, I don't think they thought graffiti was high art, but it is now. And and Detroit is the perfect palette because it's attracting people from all over the country and the world, not only to see it, but to make it. I mean, to actually, I mean, it. this is a, a prime place for artists to, to come. The murals in Detroit, and I really do think this should be a future podcast for mm-hmm. Comeback City. The murals in Detroit are some of the most beautiful art I have ever And they're so seen. unexpected. They'll just kind of appear, you know, in the most unlikely spots. And you think, oh, my gosh, there's this art, little, and little artistic gem. And it's everywhere. You know, Eastern Market has that murals in the market. And they've really promoted these beautiful murals there. But if you look around Detroit, it's everywhere. Right. And it is so pretty. I mean, it makes me cry, some of it. It's yeah. so beautiful. And did you go down to the... To the home bakery in Detroit, yeah, where in, they oh, have, in Rochester, yeah, in Rochester. Yeah. Did you see the cakes? I did. Those were so great. Oh my gosh, I could not stop looking at those cakes. Each cake. Well, the home bakery in Rochester is really well known for their gorgeous cakes, and I think that they have some very talented cake artists. At the home bakery, and their theme is the murals of Detroit right now, and they have. How many cakes do they have? Maybe like a dozen of Yeah, I think so because it kind of wraps around. It wraps uh, around the building building. and each one is um, inspired by a Detroit mural. And next to the cake, they have a little biography of each um, of the artists that did the murals. What they've done is they haven't – it's not like they've done a photographic thing. They've taken – like the main artistic elements of each piece and incorporated it into the cake. So it's um, it's really a, a phenomenal job. It know. really is. I mean, it's like, you know, they took beautiful art. I mean, it's just evolved. <laughs> we think of art as a picture in a frame, but murals have kind of taken that in a whole different direction and put art on a building. And then we have people who make cakes and things that you eat turned those murals into these work of art cakes. Right. Well, you know, and, and we've, we've known for a long time that um, the, that the, the whole visual impact of food and cuisine is really, really important. So this is really the it's full circle. Yeah, it's full circle. <laughs> so this is really the ultimate blending of those two senses. It has to appeal to the eye too, you know. It really does. But I love the way they chose, you know, really a nice selection of murals in Detroit too, they from did. a variety of areas. Right. Yeah. Not just you know. Um, Eastern Market, where I think people are most used to going to look at murals. That was the first place that that began. Yeah, they really promoted that with murals in the market. But, you know, I mean, they've got a cake that looks like the Shepherd Ferry mural at Campus Marshes, the um, mural uh, on Hopcat, which is gorgeous, Mm -hmm. that brewery on Woodward Avenue. Right. And, um, that unusual mural that has uh it looks like dripping colors over is it on um is it on 
Warren Avenue, I think, over by the Detroit Institute of Arts. It looks like mm-hmm. it's just a really tall building mm-hmm. that has no windows and just kind of dripping colors down the side. And they, they use that on the cake. And I, I just love those cakes. I thought they were, yeah. they were amazing. Yeah. But Detroit uh, is, you know, and maybe some of that is because of some of our ethnic populations, like, for instance, in um, over in Mexican town, yes. and I mean uh, the whole mural muralist tradition uh, in um, Latin American countries yes. is really great, and uh, so you know over on the west side, uh, in in those areas, murals are a big deal. It's just a natural thing, and uh, so you see some beautiful ones along there. We've gotten a little off topic. Yeah, here. we we have. We've left uh, Lafayette, you know, Park, um, but for good reason, I would say. But back to the Dequinder cut. Um, so you know, they're still working on this. Uh, they put this freight yard thing that I actually did not go to um, this summer, and uh, it's like an entertainment and gathering space uh, built from shipping containers. Yeah, the freight yard. Yeah. The Quindercut Freight Yard. That's on what Dequindercut? What a great idea. Oh, okay. It's got a beer and wine garden, entertainment, food trucks. Um, yeah, shipping containers. That is a great idea. What a great idea. Yeah. They call it kind of the hub, and it's um, it has five shipping containers stacked on top of each other to house a DJ booth and a retail space and interesting lighting treatments and the work about local artists, you know, just kind of make it a, a fun, festive place. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. You know, I have to say, you know, especially in researching our podcast, Comeback City, any development in Detroit that is happening, I have to say, is first class. They really go all out. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, it's... innovative. Shipping containers. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it's uh, whoever is behind it. Even the murals, back to the murals. If they put a mural in the suburbs, it looks not that great. But a mural in Detroit is going to be a absolute work of art. Right. Undoubtedly. Well, I think they attract really good talent too because they, they do have this. I think people see it as kind of a um, – not a blank slate, but there's, you know, we, there, there's first of all, there's open areas in Detroit because of the the loss of of uh, housing and structures, you know, that that hap- has happened over the last fifty years. There's areas where just visually you have these vistas, you know, where a wall isn't something you just see for a moment in passing, you can actually appreciate it from like 180 degrees because you can stand back and see it. So I think that has something to do with it. Uh, but yeah, it's – it's uh, and, and then as, as more people gravitate to this area and it becomes kind of a artist's enclave, you know, in the inner city, I think you have a lot of raw talent there, people that, you know, can really – accomplish great things, you know. It's attracting a lot of very um, innovative uh, and a lot of young people with a lot of really good ideas. I know I complain about hipsters a lot, but 
Um, you know, they are very picky people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they do not want something that's going to look cornball or half done. No, that's right. And, you know, and we're seeing it on the other side now with Corktown. Um, interestingly enough, the whole idea of what they, they did with Lafayette Park, the city tried to do with um, uh, on the west side with the Corktown area. And some of it worked and some of it didn't. So you had these, you know, huge areas where, you know, the people were moved out and everything. But now, as we've talked about in the past, that's being resuscitated too with things like Ford buying the, the, train station. the uh, Michigan Central train station and yeah. new businesses coming in. So You know, when I was driving through Lafayette Park, it was kind of interesting to me because, you know, I mean, I've kind of always known where it is. I haven't really explored it, you know, very fully. I know knew kind of where it was, but, you know, I kind of started in Greektown, which – you know, is a really popular place to be. Mm -hmm. And then once you cross over that expressway and you're in Lafayette Park and then you can just drive through it and you're driving through it and you're driving through it and, you know, it's a pretty big area. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in Indian Village. Yeah, right. So, <clears throat> I mean, it, it, it's got its own little niche spot there yeah. in the, a great, great location. Yeah. Well, along in the, the middle of everything, along the eastern side of it also is, uh, and I hope someday we'll do a podcast on this, you have um, the wonderful area that is Elmwood Cemetery. Oh, we should definitely yeah. do a podcast because on Elmwood this, Cemetery. Uh, yeah. And, and that almost forms kind of the eastern border. We're going to do of, a field trip. Yeah. Elmwood Cemetery, I've made a couple uh, trips there, and that that is a place to behold. It's the only place you can see what Detroit actually looked like geographically before it was a city. Before anything was built. Yeah, because it's got streams and hills. And, you know, it's like being out in the woods uh, right in the city. So, But, uh, yeah, that, that form, forms a, a border. Now – you know, one thing I do have to say, we've talked in the past about barriers that happen very often because of uh, cars, the auto industry. And we talked last time about Jefferson kind of being a, sort of a barrier to getting to the river. I think the same is kind of true of Gratiot too. Um, our, our it's major, a big, wide It's a big, street. wide street. And as wonderful it is having the Eastern Market just on the northern edge of Lafayette Park, it's kind of scary getting across Gratiot to go there. Again, if and you – And the freeway kind of comes in there too. Yeah. You, ha you have the, you know, the sort of the little uh, – uh, extension of I-75 that comes up to, to Gratiot. And for blocks, there's no way of actually getting from here to there. Um, I think that's something that city planners really need to rethink, and I think they are, to make it more walkable. Like, for instance, a, uh, a really top-rated restaurant that we were talking about on, on the way down here today, um, Antietam, Another French name. Yeah, another yeah. That On was, Antietam near Antietam Street. Yes, that's right. It was right along Gratiot, but um, he's had to close up shop because it just wasn't walkable enough. You know, 
You know what? I've been to that restaurant, and it was a big pain in the neck. I think we parked on on the opposite side of Gratiot, and getting across Gratiot was very tricky. And, you know, we had to kind of walk out of our way and Mm -hmm. down and across, you know, the big wide street. And it was a big pain in the neck to get to. And it was a small restaurant. If if a city's going to be serious about really developing a – and uh, their central city to for places to live, not just to work, okay? Not just to go during the day and then go home at night miles away. Then they've got to make it a place that you can get around. You know, cities are about walking. They're about walking, yeah. You're not going to get in the car to drive five blocks. It doesn't no. make any sense. No. So you, to find a parking place. Yeah. And those have to be pleasant. They need to be attractive. They need to be safe. Uh, they need to be accessible. And, you know, we're, I think we're doing a better job with it, but we have a long way to go. We do have a long way to go. So I did a little research in, on um, some of the housing options in Lafayette Park. Mm-hmm. Because Ed and I have an ongoing list of fantasy apartments that we want to move to in <laughs> the right. city. So uh, if we wanted to get a studio in uh, Lafayette Park on East Lafayette, we could buy it for $65,000. That's a studio. That's small. Mm-hmm. Um, if we wanted to go for four bedrooms, four bathrooms, 1,500 square feet, a large modern luxury condo, with hardwood floors, uh, fireplaces, private deck, finished basement, two-car attached garage, $625,000, which is a pretty good price. Yeah. Yeah. That was um, – and there are, there are websites, of course, that you can go to and uh, actually do virtual tours online yes. of all of these places. Right. Uh, including the, the fabulous views you have and, and all of that. But yeah, I I saw that one you're talking about, the one up in the six uh, hundreds. Um, pretty nice, pretty nice view too. I think the the higher up you go, uh, and the of more course, expensive it gets. the more expensive. And of course, you know, they when you increase the square footage, some of these are not huge places. But the kind of the genius of um, Mies van der Rohe and the other architects that worked on on these. Uh, beautiful buildings is that they could get by with smaller area, smaller square footage, because if you have a glass wall, then the whole city becomes kind of visually an extension of your 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 living area. That sounds so wonderful to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. And uh, how big is your place? Oh, it's the city of Detroit. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because it, it, it the bringing wall, the outside yeah, in. That's right, and they've tried to do that also with their, um, uh, like their their townhouses, their two story. There's also two story with a loft above that, um, and I think one of the reasons, you know, it, it's no coincidence that a lot of these designers from uh, the the Bauhaus movement, the modernist movement, also design their own furniture and everything too. The idea was you're not going to clutter up a space with tons of nice clean yeah, lines. Nice yeah. clean lines, not a whole lot of tchotchkes, maybe no. some nice statement art, but yes. not a lot of it. Um, 
and just let the lines of the the uh, the living space kind of uh, speak for Don't itself. Don't clutter up that window and block that gorgeous view. That's right. My that's why my my, uh, my wife's aunt, who is now ninety ninety one, turning ninety one, she um, always liked Venetian blinds because you could just pull them up and just have that whole open space with nothing around it. You know, it's a great idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a little bit of a personal connection with the neighborhood. Also, um, this was back in the seventies, I think. Um, my sister, who was a nurse, worked at Lafayette Clinic. Mm. And I know, Ed, that you have experience in the mental health field right. yourself. And uh, she worked at Lafayette Clinic for quite a number of years. It was a mental health facility. Right. And, uh, you know, it got the axe like so many mental health facilities Yeah, it did. It, it lost its um, its public funding and – yeah. Yeah. So that's gone. But she did live – she did not live in Lafayette Park, but she lived nearby, closer to uh, Indian Village. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember many times going down there and meeting her for lunch at Greektown because it was so close to where mm-hmm. she was working. And, yeah, it's just kind of a nice little memory. Um, I think we've done pretty – I mean, it's a National Historic Landmark. The entire – is it a neighborhood? Yeah. Would you say it's a neighborhood? It, it, oh, Park? yeah. Definitely. I mean people – I I know people and I've had like college professors who actually lived down there and their kids went to the schools there, like to the Friends School for instance. And yeah, I mean if they, they identify as – and where do you live? Lafayette Park, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's like living in Boston Edison or living in Corktown or it's a neighborhood. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely a neighborhood. And I think that there uh, – it, it probably even more so now uh, there's a sense of that too as more people come back downtown because people need neighborhoods. They need to have a feeling that they identify with a place, you know? It seems like it would be a lovely neighborhood to live in. Yeah. Yeah, really and I think pretty stable. I don't think it's uh, tremendously transient. I mean, people. I think, you know, um, particularly as they get older, they they stay put there. You know, it's got a lot of amenities. It's, it sounds wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think this is it. Have you got anything else said? Are we all set on Lafayette Park? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think um, you know, it, it's like you said. You've we've been by it uh, our whole lives, and very very often people just haven't taken the time to think. Well, what are those those tall buildings? Because it's so different from the rest of the city. I yeah. mean, we're so used to seeing these gorgeous Art Deco masterpieces just a couple blocks away, right? And then all the, of a sudden, yeah. you've got kind of all this kind of low buildings that are very kind of nice and pretty, and then a couple of the Towers that are kind of definitely very sixties, fifty looking. Yeah, very, very minimalist. Yeah, it's and, very uh, minimalist. Yeah, you know. So, uh, yeah, take a look at. Uh, it's architecturally Lafayette. significant, and uh, it's that's you know th- there's a reason why it, bec- it it's put on the um, national historic 
places site. Yeah. And in fact, it also has a dual um, uh, designation as a national historic neighborhood. And that, that just happened in 2015. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely something where an a architecture student would actually come to, to view a, a huge concentration of some, some very important architecture. Yeah, it is the largest collection of residential buildings designed by Mies van der Rohe. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us on our journey once again into Detroit's past, present, and future. And we invite you all to explore the Comeback City. Comeback City. City.